Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Hey, everybody, and thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 232 of the Intentional Growth Podcast, and I appreciate you tuning back in for more information and another amazing guest. Today, we're going to be talking about how a University of Minnesota startup that came out of their venture center spun off and grew from zero to 10 million and 65 employees within four years and eventually sold to the perfect strategic buyer. My guest today's name is Terry Suter, and she was the CEO of FastBridge before they sold to Illuminate Education. And Terry's going to share with us the experience of growing FastBridge, which is a SaaS business and provider of K-12 data and assessment software in the education technology space, also known as EdTech. Terry helped lead a phenomenal period of growth from 2015 to 2019, and the company was ranked as the number two fastest growing private company in the Twin Cities in 2018 by the Minneapolis-St. Paul. Business Journal and in 2019, top workplace by the Star Tribune. During Terry's tenure, she developed the go-to-market strategy for the low-cost and highly productive sales and marketing model that drove a four-year 56% compounded annual growth rate and 95% annual reoccurring revenue. She guided the product and development teams to innovate with quality while scaling the assessment platform to meet accelerating educator demand and usage. She successfully grew the bootstrap company without debt, scaling operations, using cash generated from sales to fund growth. Finally, Terry led the company through a successful exit and sale to Illuminate Education. One of the reasons I really like this interview is because Terry and her team experienced the crazy growth that we all yearn for while staying true to the mission, vision, and values that her and her two partners worked so hard to identify and protect along the way, and then were eventually able to sell to a strategic buyer that paid a premium for the business who also had the same mission, vision, and values that Terry and her partners did. So from start to finish of an amazing growth and exit story, Terry was still able to share things that she learned, things that they would have maybe done differently, how she reflects on the choices they made, and are able to give you, the listeners, some great gold nuggets so you can be crazy focused, intentional and growing value, and filtering through the potential exits when and how that time might come. And of course, you can't forget that if you want more clarity on a path to a more valuable business that creates more options, allows you to enjoy work more, and make a bigger impact, check out the Intentional Growth Online course. Go to arcona.io. And you can do it yourself or you can hire me for four coaching calls as an accountability coach over four weeks. It's 2000 bucks for the course and coaching or it's $1,000 for the do-it-yourself version. Go check it out. If you're ready for a new mindset and a lot of motivation for the new year, go to arcona.io. So without further ado, here's Terry Suter and her journey of growing and selling FastBridge. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. 
Terry, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Ryan. I'm great. How are you? Doing good. So we have a very common friend, and it's more than a friend to you. <laughs> Kurt uh, did an intro, and uh, I remember, so I met Kurt, Terry, uh, back, it would have been like 2015, right after we sold the business, and when I joined Allied, the peer group, and uh, he had told me that it was right around the time that you had started at your business. So you literally- That's right started, grew, and sold the company since I even uh, met Kurt. So we've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What year is it? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, 2020 all blends into one. So one month, right? It's all the same. But, you know, for the, why don't you just give us a, just a super short uh, version, Terry, of like the business that you were running, what you, what, you know, kind of a little bit of your background, and then we can take it back and unpack the full journey. Yeah. Um, so my background, I, you know, I, I came up through my career in the discipline of marketing. I've held a number of different, you know, progressive marketing leadership roles and somehow or other that led me to a, another startup before the one that we're about to talk to, uh, talk about, which was uh, called brain hive. And, uh, my, almost my entire career has been in the space of education technology, um, and leading marketing marketing organizations through that. I was actually leading a company called Brainhive, which is an online um, ebook distribution for school libraries from the period of about uh, late mid to late 2012 through 2014, early 2015. I was approached by the University of Minnesota. Um, actually, funny story about that University of Minnesota, which by the way, if you don't know, they have a really robust, program for um, startups um, out of the Venture Center um, and the Office for Technology Commercialization. So FastBridge Learning, which is the company that I assumed CEO leadership for in mid-2015, came out of the University of Minnesota. And so uh, a dear friend of mine in the uh, ed, tech, ed tech industry was at a one of those, you know, late in the afternoon ed tech meetups that um, pre-pandemic <laughs> we used to do. And, uh, and uh, they, they, you know, were talking about that they were looking for a CEO for this ed tech startup that was really exciting. And uh, she called me on her way home from this, this uh, meetup and said, Terry, this company and this role has your name written all over it. I, you know, every piece of what they're looking for from go to market experience, ed tech, you know, you name it, this is, this has got your name written, written all over it. And I was like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm leading a company, you know, it wasn't, really looking. But um, I called the uh, one of the co-founders, Dr. Ted Christ, and just said, hey, you know, I, this is who I am. I don't know that I'm the person you want to talk to, but I'd love to hear more about, you know, what you're doing. And I might know some folks <laughs> in the Twin Cities that, you know, that, that have experience in ed tech. And so he called me, it was a Saturday. I remember it was a Saturday afternoon. I was in my office, probably working on expense reports or something. <laughs> and he, <laughs> and he and I ended up talking on the phone for around four hours that afternoon. Wow. And it was one of those experiences, Ryan, where, you know, I had been in the ed tech, education technology, ed tech space for most of my career. And there's always been this, um, this aspect of sort of the promise of technology to make teaching and learning markedly better. And uh, to be, to be real about it, we have yet to see the full 
promise mm-hmm. of technology and education. And, and, and frankly, this pandemic has really sh- shown a spotlight on that. No kidding, right? <laughs> um, in, in recent months, yeah. But, you know, when I started to, to talk with Ted um, about what he had developed at the University of Minnesota and sort of the research basis behind it, the results that he was seeing in terms of true improvement in student learning outcomes, it was one of those in my head, it just clicked for me of like, wow, this is this is the thing we've been waiting for and, and I want in. And so one thing led to another. I ended up joining as their CEO um, as they were rolling out of the university as a commercial entity, following that the process that the university has through the Venture Center. And we we dove in. So, you know, what we provided at FastBridge was a K-12 assessment, formative assessment tool, all developed um really funded through research from the U.S. Department of Education. And really the premise of it, Ryan, was that we could put tools in the hands of teachers that allow them to um, very briefly with high data integrity and validity, understand where students are at in their learning, identify the risks, point them to the appropriate intervention and monitor their progress in very short order understand whether those interventions are actually driving learning growth. working right that whether that's it's actually working exactly and, and done in a way that's frankly not didn't exist in the market prior to that we're talking about assessments that are you know very brief one to two minute long assessments but putting really high quality data in the hands of mm. the teacher so super excited about it we rolled out in mid 2015 when I joined um, the two co-founders, one joined with me as CTO, um, and the other uh, stayed at the University of Minnesota to continue the research and innovation. Um, so we had a really interesting model from an R&D perspective where we were very tightly, par- continue to be very tightly partnered with the university, Ryan, and um, that ended up being really sort of our innovation pipeline, which allowed me not to have to have that, that overhead of R&D in yeah. the business um, where we can really focus then on delivery and technology. And so, you know, we we enjoyed a very um, productive and healthy partnership with the university throughout. Um, but it was really fundamental to the company and what we were bringing to market to maintain that true research basis mm-hmm. um, from everything that we brought to market and how we continued to mature the product. And that was a really key component of our growth and our acceptance in the market was that really strong sort of the, the sort of the face validity, if you will, of what we were doing because of that connection to the university of Minnesota. So, so many questions. Cause uh, you're definitely, <laughs> well, you're definitely one of the first people that I've uh, interviewed that has spun out of a university and then has had a mm-hmm. partnership. So a couple, couple questions uh, for the foundation, Terry is like, uh, a couple on ownership and then also like on the operations and like how who your customers were. So let me, let's start with for like, who were the customers? How did you price the product? And then, I mean, you guys were doing millions in revenue, right? I, I saw some of the publications that when I was poking around online. So like you, you weren't some yeah. like, you weren't some pre-revenue tech startup. I mean, you had a viable product that was bringing in cash so kind of curious, maybe talk about like the delivery model and how your yeah. customers work. And then we can talk about the 
Uh, I'm curious on the funding and the ownership structure as you guys were uh, growing. So maybe who were your customers and how were you finding them? Yeah, it, you know, the, the university innovation model, and by the way, there's you know, many uh, research universities across the country have a similar model. The University of Minnesota is uh, probably one of the more mature in the country, and they have a really, really um, uh, fantastic program. They roll out about um, 10 to 12 startups a year, wow. and then they also help um, researchers developing technologies through like uh, licensing as well as a startup program. So I would encourage folks to to take a look at that because it's something, you know, in the Twin Cities community, we can absolutely yeah, be proud awesome. of. But it's also a very interesting model from a startup entrepreneurship perspective. Oftentimes, uh, academic researchers, they do their work, as did my two partners, truly for the purposes of academic research mm-hmm. without really an intent to commercialize. But every once in a while... Um, something really special comes out of that research that's worthy of commercialization because you want to get it out into the market space so that it benefits communities, in our case, education. So so that's the university model. Um, but one of the interesting and I think you know huge benefits was when we rolled out, we had a viable product. So and we went through a small period prior to commercialization where we actually um, had a contract and continue to um, with the state of Iowa to deliver reading literacy assessments for the state of Iowa for K-6. Cool. That essentially became the seed money that helped to fund our, our rollout. It was about a million dollar a year contract. Wow, cool. And um, and then we had, you know, in the Twin Cities community, because we years of research went into it, we had sort of early adopters who had been participating and using the product for research. Um, many of the large and mid-sized districts around the greater metro area had already been using FastBridge. So the point of it is, is we had a product, albeit, you know, developed for research, which will be an important point I'll bring up a little bit later about how we scaled. We had a product, we had early adopter users and customers, we had revenue in our first year. What we didn't have was an infrastructure around the business. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so a lot of startups have to build the pro, you know, they have an idea, they have a concept, they have to spend a year or two building a product and operating pre-revenue. We didn't have that, but we had no infrastructure, but yet we're delivering product. So things like customer support operations, uh, you know, payroll <laughs> benefits, you know, things like that. You know, a, a fun story I like to tell is my first week I was talking with the the gentleman who was um, our head of customer support. And I said, you know, as your new CEO, what what can I do to support you and make you successful to help our customers be successful? And he looked me completely deadpan in the face and said, well, a telephone would be nice. And it was so indicative of how, how little infrastructure we had around this operating, uh, you know, product that was already out in, in, you know, in, in use in schools. So, so um, that was, yeah. So I was going to say a question on like, in, cause then uh, as you're rolling into delivering your services and then how you scale, but just because it's, I, I think it's an important part part is like how, I mean, you guys were partnered with the U of M. So like 
you know, you've got probably a couple expensive people that would want a paycheck, right? And I don't, mm. so I don't know what the structure, the ownership structure was with the U because typically if you're going and raising money, you're selling a lot of your soul and the future mm. equity of the business to a VC. Um, so like, what was the structure set up with the U? I mean, are they taking equity or are they having royalties? And then are your co-founders like, how did that whole setup? Look? Yeah. So um, it's a great question. And, you know, yes, the University of Minnesota is part of uh, as part of the Venture Center and their work to help commercialize these startups. They do negotiate um, typically both royalties and an equity stake in the business. It varies depending on the business, but they did have a, a small equity stake in the business. The two co-found, uh, two co-founders and inventors had the largest um, equity in the business, and then I had a small amount of equity. So there was truly only four equity owners. Mm -hmm. um, we did not have any VC private equity, um, and we were totally bootstrapped. Um, so awesome. we truly funded the business through sales. The university, there was a, a you know a small a small amount of of money, like less than a quarter of a million dollars that they put into helping with the the rollout out of the I was university. Say, were they like paying? Were they like paying paychecks for the founders and stuff like that, or the R and D? No. Or so that was all like they were making their money through other areas and doing the research and super cool. Yeah, and uh, the, a lot of the research was funded on grants. So, okay. um, and which is a typical model at a research university, right? So an academic applies for a grant with the Institute for Educational Sciences or the U.S. Department of Education in our, in our case, um, National Science Foundation. If they're lucky to get funded, it's typically a, you know, three to five or six year research cycle um, there's a, a, a bucket of money that funds those researchers. In our case, uh, there's a lab. And then the university also, you know, subsidizes that through other types of funding initiatives or whatever at the college um, level. Um, and so, you know, that that is the typical model of how mm -hmm. research gets funded. And again, it's not often um, when you think about how much research it gets done at the you know academic level at universities, very seldom do those things get commercialized. It's typically right. research for research purposes. Oftentimes, you know, it, it results in some sort of a a large uh, report or journal articles or what have you, and then it gets shelved. And I think one of the beauties and one of the things that I was really excited about when approached and, and had the opportunity to join FastBridge as its CEO is that this was an opportunity to take really, you know, phenomenal research-based product that, that had uh, efficacy data. In other words, it was working um, to accelerate <laughs> learning and actually get it in the hands of practitioners rather than put it on the shelf. Um, which happens a lot with research, right? Um, and so that was one of the most exciting aspects of why I was like, wow, like this is this is something that I, I want to be a part of. Um, the mission is so important. And we have something that's actually working in schools. It's, a, it, it's almost morally incumbent upon us to get this into his hands, the, as many hands of educators as totally. we possibly can. And so, so how do we do that? Right. Um, so that was really sort of the purpose and mission behind what we were doing. This is so coming in with a marketing background. And as 
your part of the commercialization strategy. Tell us, like, what, what was your strategy? Did you come in with a preconceived notion of what you were going to be doing? Or did you, like, what was your process of formulating the strategy of the business? And, like, how did you take it to market? Um, great question. So, yeah, when it, obviously one of the very first things I, I did um, coming into the business was trying to understand, like, what the market opportunity was, total addressable market, all of those traditional things that you look at from a go-to-market perspective. And then, you know, what did we have to work with from a sales and marketing um, perspective, both in terms of resources, people, and resources, cash. Um, and and the, and the bottom line was, um, to the point of my customer support person didn't have a telephone, we had very little <laughs> to begin with. So, you know, one of the benefits to me being CEO and, and coming up through marketing is I, I essentially wore that hat, you know, and... Mm-hmm as I'm sure many of your listeners do as entrepreneurs, especially in the early years, you wear many hats um, as a <laughs> yes. CEO. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I did the marketing for those first years. We had um, one fantastic sales leader that, that was um, part of the team at launch um, that actually came from one of our top competitors. So the great oh, cool. thing about that was he deeply knew the space, of course, he had a, a, a Rolodex, if you will, of relationships um, and uh, frankly knew the the warts of our, our largest competitor who had recently gone also through an acquisition and um, the, the acquiring company did it no favors. And so we were, to be honest, we hit a lot of points of good luck. And a lot of points of, um, and leveraged, you know, some smart strategic decisions around how we would ramp up. Um, Having somebody that had market experience um, really helped to, you know, reduce the ramp up that typically would be needed when you bring in a new sales person. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we just, we just leveraged the heck out of the fact that we had the best, most cutting edge, most modern tool for the purpose in the market, our top competitor, what had points of weakness. And uh, I had a great salesperson. We leveraged the lowest cost marketing (laughs) channels that we could, largely SEO, pay-per-click. We had a very rudimentary, you know, website. But at the end of the day, Ryan, um, you know, the research basis and the quality of the product was what was fundamental um, Mm -hmm. to, to the go to market. And so, you know, when I think back on, you know, what we did, the focus that we had on the product and product quality, continued innovation was really foundational. Um, We were able to keep our sales and marketing costs really quite low um, and leveraged word of mouth. Now in the education space, word of mouth is gold. Yeah. District leaders and educators trust each (laughs) other more so than any email campaign or, you know, Google search or, or what have you is going to drive. They talk to each other about what's working and what's not working. The minute somebody's thinking about switching, you know, vendors, they call their, their district, you know, next door in the County over and say, who are you using? What have you heard? And, uh, and, and that was really, that was really foundational to our, to our early growth. So you, I'm curious on like the, uh, how you guys priced 
it and whether it was it was it like subscription based was it you know yeah. monthly annual and you know you mentioned because like a couple a couple of different paths of this area is as for the listeners is and however you want to weave this in is a lot of times listeners or people that have been on the show or first-time entrepreneurs don't understand what's valued in a business until they sell and they're going through due diligence <laughs> So like mm. when you're talking about growing, you know, some things that come to mind is like, okay, did you get that million dollars from Iowa up front and then, and you got good cash flow? So there's kind of these, the, the kind of the two parts of this is like the good go to market sales and marketing strategy to scale up your revenue and your customer base. But then also, are you doing it in a way that's going to be valued down the road? And sometimes people don't yeah. find out that what they did wasn't valued or it was highly valuable and they just didn't intentionally do that. They just got kind of got lucky. So like I said, I don't know how you want to tackle that, but I think it's a uh, interesting, interesting. Yeah. I, um, what I, what I would share is that we were traditional like software as a service SaaS model. Um, subscription-based licensing. Um, we sold directly to school districts. Typically, a school district would start start with us, you know, maybe K three, maybe K six, and we would have you know work hard to have a really successful implementation at that size, and then you know expand with each renewal year. Um, so it's a renewal-based business retention, very very important in that business model. We our pricing was very competitive and that was on purpose. We, um, we were not the cheapest in the market, but we were on the low end. Um, and we provided some, uh, our, our value proposition really was around without getting too in the weeds about the assessments, bringing together two, two different schools of thought or practices around assessment, um, onto one platform, including both reading math and social emotional behavior on one platform no other competitor in the market had that combination on one platform for one subscription price, which was on the, the low end of what our competitors were offering. So from an economic of value perspective, it, it was pretty undeniable. We, uh, annual subscription contracts paid up front. Um, so typically <laughs> they just, would say- Let's take got, a pause there. You know, like, 2,000 two students, yeah. I was just going to say, like, you, you've said something so instrumental of contracts, subscription, paid up front. <laughs> it's like, it's gold. Paid up front. Yes. It, it, it was so important. And, you know, the school market, by the way, very um, kind of, very, you know, the good thing about it is it's very predictable. Um, schools pay their bills, <laughs> you know, so uh, that's great. Um, very cyclical. So it's very predictable in terms of, you know, we know the selling cycle, we know when they're going to buy, when they're buying an uh, assessment platform, they're going to start at the beginning of the school year. So all our subscriptions started August 1st, they all pay up front. So we would get all of our cash essentially in Q3. We'd have to live on that cash all year long. But it was really important to us that we got paid up front. So they would say, hey, we've got 2,000 students that are going to be using your platform. Great. When we rolled out, we were $6 a student. We'd send them an invoice. We'd get paid typically within 60 to 90 days wow. of them getting the invoice. And we lived on that cash um, all, all year long. So a lot of predictability on the financials of the business, which was 
which was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, beautiful for beautiful everybody, thing. right? And like, <laughs> well, and and that's where like, in as we get closer towards the end of the the journey of of selling the business, curious on how people looked at that. Because I mean, you know, there's you know when and how your cash. I mean, they call it the in finance cash conversion cycle, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. you you're getting all your money up front, so scalability is way different than a manufacturer that has to buy tons of inventory, eat up their cash. So. Yeah, As you're- a tech, technology company, you don't have, you have no physical product, you know, when in, in front, for the most part, you, your costs of technology, whether it's cloud hosting, your costs of development, but those are, you know, uh, for every student that you're adding, we're not really adding a whole lot of costs in order to support mm-hmm. those. Now, over time, when we talk about how did we scale, we did have to grow our customer support, our training capabilities. So our cost of our, our um, you know, cost of goods sold, so to speak, um, did, you know, increase over time, but SaaS businesses and technology SaaS businesses are high margin, you know, typically 75 to 85% margin. Yeah. Just let that sink in. You get all your cash up front, (laughs) you're scaling and you get 70, 80% margins. So, how did you scale? Like what were some of the strategies that you guys implemented that allowed you to scale? Well, um, you know, again, we were fully bootstrapped. So everything um, and and the ownership team, my partners and I, we made the decision at the forefront at the at the very beginning that we we would take every dollar that we were earning and put it back into the business so that we continue to grow it. We really put the focus on product. Um, my philosophy there really was that if the product continued to be, you know, exceptional, high quality, not only in terms of the the, the underlying research basis of the assessments, but also the user experience, the technical quality, you know, when you log in, could you get <laughs> where you needed to go? Could you log in? Those types of things. Um, quality had to be high. And if quality was high, if the user experience was intuitive, we could um, naturally keep a control on our cost of support, our cost of training, our cost of technology. And so that was that, you know, that was sort of an underlying philosophy of mine and scaling up the business is to put um, as much as we could into the continued um, innovation and quality of the product. Also, I could keep my cost of sales and marketing low. And then through every, you know, through every phase. So we grew really, really fast, Ryan. Um, We went from that first year in 2015 we had the universe, uh, state of Iowa contract was a, about a million. I think we our total revenue that year was maybe a million and a half. So one of one of my first orders of business was a Iowa needs to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> we can't afford for Iowa not to be happy, and and they were. But we also needed to diversify. It was too much of our business relying on one customer. And you know, by the end of our second year, we were probably at about mm, four million. By the end of 2018, we were at about 10 million. Wow. Um, so we grew really, really fast, which is fabulous. It's a fabulous problem to have. However, I say it's a, a problem because what was really critical for us was how do we make sure that 
you know, we weren't getting out over our skis. So there was a constant rebalancing that I was doing um, in terms of how we were reinvesting the dollars that we were earning through sales in terms of how do we grow the team and what functional areas are we growing the team? How do I build a a management team, a, a leadership team around me? Because there came a point in time, like I couldn't wear every hat. And, um, I just tried to be as strategic as I could. Um, and every decision I made wasn't perfect, but it, we did a pretty good job of calibrating, you know, when was the right time to add another person in support? Mm-hmm. When did we have to add another trainer? When, uh, when, when was the right time to add to the sales organization? What was the and, data points? Terry going into your decision-making there. So like when you're like, maybe kind of like give us an insight of like, so you're sitting in a management meeting or like a planning Mm -hmm. meeting. How are you making those decisions? Was it based on the numbers, based on sales, based on cash, based on certain metrics? How are you deciding when and how to invest? (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'm a a big believer in KPIs and metrics. Um, And uh, so one of the things, you know, about my background, you know, I'm probably unlike a lot of founder-led um, companies and, and startups is that I had the benefit of being in a variety of different sized organizations before jumping into FastBridge as CEO. So I've worked in, you know, publicly traded companies. I've worked in private companies. I've worked in, you know, PE-backed companies. And I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and enough one of those things like, you know, enough to be dangerous, right? So I kind of had some best practices from operating in larger organizations um, that I pushed into our organization early. Um, I didn't wait until we were two, three, four years down the line to put best practices such as strategic planning or driving performance-based decision-making into the business. Those best practices were something that I paid close attention to early kind of really tried to build that into the fabric of what we were doing as a, as a management team, as I started to have that mm-hmm. around me and certainly with my, with my business partners. Um, so, you know, in terms of trying to figure out, well, where did, where do we invest? How do we make those decisions? And it, actually it came I, from, a, uh, yeah, go I was ahead. Say, like, well, one question, one, maybe uh, additional question to, to add into your answers is, and, and this came from what you just described as your background is I'm super curious, Terry, there's this like, there's this shift in people's mindset that happens throughout their business where like all of a sudden they're not solving for annual income, which you, you had already mentioned that you and your founders talked about reinvesting every dollar. There's a big point of conflict and tension where people go, okay, if we're making a half a million dollars in EBITDA, do we distribute it or not? And then, they, they, you know, that's right when the conflict starts because they have no like long-term like, hey, I want my money or we're going to reinvest it. And, you've, you know, depending on what kind of company you are, you have to distribute it equally. So you have to get it in agreement on how much you reinvest versus take home. And then are you growing the value of the business? And that's that mindset shift. And you had said that you work for private equity. So I think kind of laying some groundwork when you're talking mm-hmm. about reinvesting. So you're agreeing that you're going to reinvest everything. Are you reinvesting in areas that grow value? Did you have that mindset because of where you came from? Or like, was the U of M planning on liquidating? Like, how did you and where did you get that mindset of this thing will be worth something? And what should we do with it? Yeah, we we didn't, to be honest, right? <laughs> we were so, uh, my partners. Yeah, no, I mean, 
it, it was it was there, but it wasn't explicit, I guess, is how I would um, rephrase my answer. Um, there was really no intention of exiting. Um, and and so I'll, I'll when you're ready, I'll kind of share a little bit more about how that came to pass at, you know, in, in uh, late 2018, um, early 2019. But but we were operating, like I said, we we made the decisions of the, the equity owners, the partners from the get-go. We did a couple of things. We were very intentional about um, our mission and purpose and that and in our values. We set those out. I remember sitting in our teeny tiny conference room in our, our first office on St. Anthony, Maine before we talked about anything around really the the business, we talked about mission, purpose, and values um, and what kind of business that we wanted to build with intent. And that really drove most, if not all, of the decisions that we made about the business. We always came back to mission and values. The second thing was we made the decision very early that we we would take no distributions. You know, I had a salary. My partner, who was the CTO, had a salary. The partner who was at the university is a full-time tenured professor at the university. He was not taking a salary out of the business. Oh, and cool. um, and we were paying a, a small royalty to the university based on sales. So we were in a position where we could keep, keep everything that we were making um, – in the business and and reinvest it, whether it was in um, growing our our cloud technology platform, um, investing in new feature functionality, you know, growing our support and and training um, capabilities, growing our sales and marketing, what have you. So those were things that we decided very early on. And we also said, (laughs) probably not immediately, but like within the first year, the, the partners and I would get together occasionally and, and have conversations around like, well, what would be your magic number? If we were <laughs> ever to sell this thing, what, you know, and what, what would the number have to be to make it even interesting? And at the time when we were having those conversations, the number seemed so large that it was so far out into the future almost to not even be a distraction to us. And what we were all, you know, again, kind of came back to the mission. What we were, what we aimed to do was to get this product into as many teachers' hands as we possibly could. And as long as we were doing that successfully, as long as we were having fun, we intended to keep doing that for a really long time. And so we didn't, we weren't really concerned with what was the valuation of the business or how were we, you know, thinking about scaling and with the, through the lens of how do we make this the most valuable from an investor perspective? That really wasn't driving us. It was all about the mission. I love it. And so for the listeners, Terry, as we continue to unfold the story, what I find so intriguing is that The really like, so I'm a big fan of conscious capitalism and doing good and having a good, valuable business that the market values. Therefore, you generate income and cash flow because the market values it. So, like, as you're reinvesting and you guys are are scaling the business, and your number probably, your magic number probably came a little bit more realistic, would be my guess. And there's this concept, and is 
you know, you're piling because the mission is so fun. You're having fun. And then, so there's three things, sorry, I'm, I'm going all over the place. Three things that we have kind of identified that entrepreneurs love making money, having a lot of fun and making an impact. And the moment that those, one of those three things starts to wobble, not having as much fun, then, then you start to go, what, what do I do about this? Right. Or there's a out of the blue offer Mm. that slams you in front of the face that shakes your whole kind of plan. So I'm kind of curious as you're going through that, where, if, if some of those things started to wobble, did you guys not start to not have as much fun or was the impact, you know, you were, you're hitting some ceilings where in that process did all of a sudden you go, Hey, what's the next stage with this business? Yeah. You know, we, we knew all along that we were having an impact that was never, we never wavered on that. And, and, and the market was telling us we were having an impact both explicitly and implicitly through the growth that we were having in implementations and sales. And we could continue to see the number of students that were, you know, logging in, who were taking the assessments. We could see the the learning growth happening. And so there was a tremendous amount of gratification and and not only for the partners, but for our team, our team members. Over the course of the, the, the trajectory of the business, we started when we rolled out, there was about, I think, six, six of us, including two, myself and, and the CTO. And by the time we we did exit, there was 65. Um, and mission mission and purpose and having impact, um, fundamentally important to every single team member at Fastbridge. Tell me an example or a story where, because it, it sounds obviously if that was number one was mission, impact, and vision, where in the product R&D people or even the buyers, and we can probably t- touch on that in a little bit, but where you had to make a hard decision because it didn't align with your mission and vision and values. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know that I can come up with an example of that. That's a good thing then, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, we, we, <laughs> every decision we made started with mission, vision, and values. Um, so there wasn't like any, like, and, and honestly, it's just interesting because like, you know, I've seen it in the past where like someone had to shortcut their product or R&D or people they hired because they needed to, or they wanted to, to for ease. But then all of a sudden you're kind of shortchanging some of the things that you're doing on the outside. Doesn't mean that you did it. I just kind of curious. Cause I think. Yeah, we really didn't. Um, yeah, we, we really didn't have to do that. I will, I will say that there, you know, where the shakiness came to come coming back to your, your other question, you know, we knew we were having impact. I can't remember what the three words, it was impact. Yeah. It was impact, have fun and make money. <laughs> okay. Yes. So, you know, the business was making money. Again, we we all decided we weren't going to take any dividends or, you know, out of the business we were putting it back in. The have fun part, it got hard. It did get hard. You know, when you're when you're growing that fast, competing priorities is probably how I would um and from that perspective, particularly I think, you know, less so for me, more for the founders. You know, the they aren't they're they're they come from academia. The world of business was never something that they aspired to, desired. In, in some ways, they almost came to it reluctantly because it, they 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 knew that that was the best way to carry out their mission. 
Mm -hmm. um, was through commercialization, but it wasn't something that I, I, either of them aspired to. Um, And so when we started probably around 2017, when we really started to see the growth, you know, curve line start to, to, to hockey stick up, it put pressure on the business around the, the technology, the, product and the and the platform were truly developed for research there came a point in time when you when you know we realized that what was built for research probably wasn't going to withstand the scale that we were seeing in terms of usage on the platform and we needed to make some you know in their view probably some unsexy um, investments in the technology and the platform that were really kind of under the hood stuff that you know, customers just expected. Um, it wasn't adding new innovation or feature functionality that, you know, <laughs> seemed, you know, like what what we really had on the roadmap and aspired to deliver, but we had to do it. And our customers were telling us that we had to do it to kind of come back to like, what were some of those key metrics? We could see it. We could mm-hmm. see it in the number of support tickets that were being logged, the, the time for resolving those support tickets. Our quality metrics were suffering. And so we we absolutely had to make those investments to continue scaling the business. And if we didn't make the, the investments, we weren't going to be able to continue on the growth trajectory, which was antithetical to our mission. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> So mm-hmm. those were sort of the the points in time where, you know, those were hard decisions um, and it, it made it less fun um, because we were having to take some of those, you know, cherished dollars to reinvest and put it in places that it's sort of like, you know, when you, when you own a home and you have to replace the roof, nobody wants to spend their money replacing the roof. <laughs> They'd rather remodel the kitchen, right? Um, we had to replace the roof. <laughs> Great analogy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, yeah, or like your septic. I mean, I, I, there, like you're gonna have to put thirty grand into your septic so you can go to the bathroom, but it's not a master yeah. bath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. Um, so yeah, what, yeah. So the, those were, were a couple points in time where you know it, it, it felt a little less fun, particularly particularly for the inventors. So like, how did you guys have those conversations, and then what did you use, or what resources or advice did you use to make progress? and change the direction or like, how did that, how did that all unfold? Um, you know, we would, we would have regular sort of offsite strategy meetings, the partners and I, typically they'd be all day long. And typically, you know, sometimes, you know, often, most of the times we would laugh every once in a while, there'd be tears. Every (laughs) once in a while, there would be some arguments, but at the end of the day, we always worked really hard to stay very aligned. And, uh, you know, we would just, frankly, arm wrestle through those hard decisions. You know, we, it, it wasn't equal in terms of equity ownership, you know, the, the, the two co-founders and one of the co-founders had the majority interest. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, he sort of had the final veto authority, if you will, okay. because he just had, you know, the, the share of, the of ownership. But um, but we didn't really operate that way. We um, we made sure that we were you know very aligned. The University of Minnesota, by the way, as as a rule with their startups, they don't tend to take any sort of a voting position. They act in an in an, in an advisory capacity, but they they don't take a voting position. So it really came down to myself and the two co-founder inventors having a great working relationship. Um, and staying very aligned. 
Um, so how which did you... Some days were better, easier than others, for sure. You know, and the interesting thing for me as, a, as the business person, you know, my two partners, again, they, they didn't aspire to a commercial entity or to be in business. So, you know, I, I, there was a lot of, uh, and I, I, not to be pedantic, but there was a lot of education. There was just a lot of questions around like, why is this happening? What does it mean? How does Mm -hmm. this align to the financial health of the business? If we did X versus Y, what are, you know, what, what would be the anticipated outcomes? We just had to take a lot of time and making sure that we were being super smart and strategic. And I'm, I'm was blessed with having two partners that really trusted me with driving the right decisions in the business. So how did you figure, like where, like with you guys' uh, efforts staying aligned, how, as we kind of roll into, because we've got maybe about 15-ish minutes or so left, um, how did you roll into, hey, you know what, the best approach for FastBridge would be to sell? Like, I mean, what was the, how did you guys get aligned on that? And maybe like, what did you do to explore if you were the trusted person kind of uh, spearheading that, like, what did you explore to make that decision? And then how did that whole train start moving? Yeah. Uh, a couple of things I'll, I'll do a, a quick, quick, how did we get to the end of 2018? So, you know, that 2017 timeframe that I talked about, we, we really, you know, we started to see that the start of that hockey stick, we had to make some investments in sort of the infrastructure of the technology. We, we made some investments in our support training. We really needed to essentially, um, Ryan is of rebalance between the growth we were seeing in sales and customer adoption and manage that growth relative to our operational capacity and make it. And so um, I remember having some very um, uh, philosophical debates with my head of sales around managed growth, um, which he thought was <laughs> completely crazy. What? But I, sales? But, I don't understand. <laughs> well, it, it is. A, I mean, it does seem a little counterintuitive when we can go get get the sales, why would we not go get the sales? And um, like I said, there were some philosophical debates about managing the growth in a way that we wouldn't get out over our skis because as a SaaS business, customer retention and renewals is so fundamental. Um, It costs a lot more to go get a new customer than it does to retain your current customers, right? And so that renewal base is, is critical. And so I wanted to make sure that we were not growing so fast as to get out over our skis. We tried to make the right investments in the technology and the support uh, and operational processes, making sure that we were operating as effectively and efficiently as we could. We got that foundation under us. 2017 was a, a big year for getting that done. Um, we rolled into 2018, we had another huge year of growth. And towards the end of 2018, probably the middle middle part of the year, um, I by the way, I had at that, by this point in time, I had a, a, a fractional CFO working with me as nice. part of my management team. Um, wish I would have done that sooner, by the way. Probably needed to have done that a year earlier. But again, you know, when you're the CEO, you're wearing multiple hats. There came a point in time where I realized like, I need a CFO. Yeah, you're breaking it all the seams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I had I had uh, a fantastic uh, fractional CFO that that worked with us. I had an advisory board in place, and so we started having some real 
good discussions about, okay, we've got this foundation under us. We've sort of recalibrated the operations against the the pace of, of growth. Is now the time to put fuel on the fire from a sales and marketing perspective? At this point in time, we had three people on my sales team and one person in marketing. And um, we really felt like we were at a point in time where we could put kerosene on the fuel or, awesome. you know, pour kerosene yeah. on the fire, excuse me. And, um, and really start to put some, some muscle behind our sales and marketing to accelerate our growth. And so we started contemplating and, you know, talked to our advisory board, you know, through our CFO and his experience, like, is this the time to do a capital raise? And um, I engaged with Cherry Tree, who's an investment banker here in the Twin Cities. They have, they're yeah, fantastic. Dave and Steve. I know Dave and Steve. Yeah, I don't know Chad, Chad Johnson. Yeah, they're cool. a great team over there. And they have a lot of experience in the education space and tech companies in general. Um, and, I, and, and I had some experience with them and some relationships with them from my prior life. And so I called them and said, hey can you come in and have a conversation with my partners and I, um, my partners have never been through a capital raise. Let's talk about the pros and cons, the timing, come in and take a look and, and help us get our heads right about whether this would make sense for us. And what does it mean from a partnership perspective, you know, um, minority versus majority, <laughs> control, you know, all of that stuff. And again, my, my partners are, they're incredibly brilliant. Um, business and financials are not their forte. So that ended up being a, you know, a real important relationship and helped us, you know, kind of guide some of those decisions as well as really leverage my advisory board. And that's definitely something, again, when I think back, what I wish I would have had that advisory board in place a year or two, even earlier, um, because they were just a fantastic group of business leaders that had sort of been there, done that great sounding board for me, but as well as, you know, kind of had that impartial viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in looking at, uh, impartially at our business and saying, well, you know, you might think about X, Y, or Z. And, um, so we went into the end of 2018, um, with the intent and we did the work, um, to get ready to do a capital raise. We decided, okay, let's, let's do that. Um, we worked through about how much would we want to raise in would we take a minority or a majority interest? What would that do in terms of <laughs> kind of the culture of our leadership team and the ownership structure? Got our heads around that. We're a nanosecond away from sending out the book, so to speak. Yeah. And um, the first week of January, we received two um, kind of un- unsolicited preemptive offers. Oh, you had done before from- you took the market? <laughs> Before we sent the book out, yeah, and and they came from um, Illuminate Education, who we ultimately did did sell the company to. They came from, and they they came to us um, with two offers. One was for a minority um, investment in the business, and the second was for a full full acquisition, cash acquisition of of wow. the company. And at first, um, it really threw us for a loop. Um, it was sort of like this, well, wait, we didn't ask for this and this is outside of our process and we have no intention of selling the company. And 
uh, it just, it really kind of threw us for a loop and, and, and <laughs> cherry tree and, and, and our CFO said, you know, you really should take a second look at this. It, this is a really good offer. <laughs> like before you dismiss it because it's outside a process, let's take a look at this offer and you know, what does it hurt? Let's have a conversation. You know, you're not obligated to do anything just to have the conversation. And so, so we did. So Terry, in in that situation, what I find interesting is like, so a lot of people I have interviewed or talked to on a daily basis, they get the out of the blue offer, but they didn't, it's like you were almost mentally and kind of operationally getting ready for it. So like you were able to, I don't know if you slotted it right into your process or how that worked, but like, what would have happened if you would have gotten that out of the blue offer before meeting with Jerry Dree? Uh, it, it would have been dismissed. Would you have had any way to calibrate whether it was good, not good terms, conditions? No, no, um, not, not really. I, you know, I think that the, the number <laughs> on the letter would have been like, wow, I don't know where they're coming from. Cause they haven't even looked at our financials. So I'm not sure how they're deriving their first pass valuation that they're throwing on a piece of paper for us. But I think it really would have been like, no, we're not, we're not planning on selling the company. So I, I think it just, honestly, it would, we probably would have dismissed mm-hmm. it. And we almost dismissed it, even though we had been engaged with, with Cherry Tree. And it really was because in our mind's eye, again, we as an ownership team, as partners, we intended to keep, keep doing Fastbridge, keep running Fastbridge independently. As long as we were all having fun doing it, and we were having an impact and 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 finding success. So it just was so. We had our minds eye set on a capital raise, not on a on a sale, and an exit. But when we really started digging in, um, like I said, they came to us with two offers. One was for a minority investment. And we 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 looked at that because like okay well you know that's probably what similar to what we would have gotten had we sent the book out we would have gotten some you know some some firms to come to the table with with an offer um, but then you know this was coming from a strategic not necessarily from a private equity or a VC. So what that did was it really kind of made us question like, well, what does that look like when you bring in an investment from a strategic and then maybe maybe later down we later on down the line we want to do another, you know, another raise does it could get too complicated because maybe another strategic would want to come in and that's not in the best interest of right. this strategic it, you know, versus, you know, if it's just a sort of a financial, you know, private equity or VC, they don't sort of have that same from an industry competitive perspective. So we're like, yeah, oh, that seems like it would be a little too complicated and maybe ultimately handcuff us. So let's, let's not, let's not entertain the minority offer. But then what was left on the table was the, you know, the full, full acquisition. And um, when we sat back, and we really started thinking about it once, you know, once our, <laughs> once cherry tree backed us off the ledge of saying like, just dismiss it out of hand. Uh, number one, the number was impressive. Um, did, it, did it check your guys' magic numbers? It did match. It actually <laughs> matched the magic number that we had oh, cool. put on a piece of paper back in 2016. Um <laughs> 
and you know, then of course we were like, well, if that's what they're just throwing on a piece of paper without even having seen our financials or how we would think about valuation, seems like we can get the number higher. So if they're really interested in talking, let's go into it with the with the perspective of of the number they they put down there is too low. But also, you know, the other the other piece is, you know, kind of coming back to the mission and values. And, you know, what we knew about this company was that they, they were actually very aligned from a mission perspective, quite aligned from a culture and values perspective. The the product line that they had, you know, they didn't have anything else in their portfolio that looked, smelled, or, you know, behaved like FastBridge. So we knew we were filling a hole strategically for them. And also that they weren't buying us, you know, oftentimes companies will get required to take a competitor out of play. It was important to us if we were going to entertain a strategic buyer, that they weren't going to take us out of play, that they were going to actually, in fact, help us continue our mission. Yeah. Right. And and so, you know, those those things on the surface seemed to make sense. The number was interesting. So we said, you know, let's let's put a pause on sending the book out. Um, and we'll go into the 90 day, you know, period. We'll we're, we'll explore this. And, you know, long story short, six months later, we ended up executing the sale to illuminate education. And it was a full cat, you know, full cash sale. Each of our us owners did roll up a small amount of equity into the illuminate organization. So we continue to have some skin in the game. Are they private equity backed or are they like what's the ownership? They are. Okay. So, they so are you private were, equity backed. It's interesting because like, you know, even in the world of strategics these days, the chances that someone is private equity back behind the strategic is even higher because of the money flowing around. Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. Carrie, did you, were you, did you entertain any more offers to compare mission, vision values of different buyers and terms, conditions, pricing? We didn't, we didn't. Um, and, th- and that's where we really relied on cherry tree. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're so grateful for their partnership and their guidance. And again, tapped into um, the advisory board um, to really just understand, you know, was the ultimate valuation in the way that we were looking at the business, the way that they were looking at the business, did it make sense? We talked, uh, you know, on many occasions around, should we, should we put a pause on this and send out the book? Would we likely get better offers that would be more aligned from a mission, vision, values, culture perspective? You know, and frankly, how much was it worth it to illuminate and their private equity owner for us not to do that? Mm-hmm. We also, at every step of the way, were fully prepared to walk away. That is so huge. Tell just, I don't know if you've got a way to describe the power that that gave you. So like, cause like where you're kind of leading up to here, like at this moment in this, in your story is that you have choices and that's all mm-hmm. I want for our listeners is like, you have choices, you've got the data. So you've got cherry tree They're They're the ones helping you, whether you should take it to market or not, or just vet this out. So you've got some education, you got choices and like, mm-hmm. you know, what did that feel like to have choices? You know, we were really blessed because even with the capital raise, we didn't need it. Um, the business wasn't reliant upon us getting a cash infusion infusion in order for us to keep operating. We could have kept operating exactly how, how we were and probably would have kept a, a, a really healthy, you know, double digit growth trajectory. 
without it. We did, we, in, the intention of the capital raise was just to add fuel to the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we always sort of had, it, it felt really, um, frankly, empowering to know that we, we didn't need the capital raise. We certainly didn't need to sell. So it really gave us the opportunity to evaluate the why behind the what. Ooh, and um, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> and really, you know, kind of coming back to, you know, is it is a lot is it aligned? And and the the very first conversations that we had as a partnership team in those early days of 2015 about what were what were we intending for the business, what kind of business were we trying to build? And would would our mission be in the best hands of Illuminate if, if we sold? And if at any point in time, any of the partners, and that was the other thing too, we agreed if any single one of us, regardless of our equity position, felt like it wasn't the right decision, we each had the, the power to raise our hand and say, no, let's, let's take a pause. So it felt very empowering and... Um, choice, you know, having the choice of not having to do it (laughs) is huge. So, you know, like with your, with the creatives, Terry, it's like, you know, there's a lot of other people that the mission becomes so important that it's like, how do you, how do you compare your mission, the alignment with the buyer and the money, right? Because, you know, what happens is if people don't understand all the complexities of deal structures, valuation, net proceeds, how much you're going to actually walk away with. You get focused on that magic number and you might not understand. You know, you're focused on the in due diligence on the number and not necessarily doing the due diligence on the mission and vision of what that mm-hmm. buyer is going to do with your company. So like, how did you guys have that discussion and what did you do to, to make sure that Illuminate was like actually going to hold true to what they said? Because there was a there was this one woman that was on my show where she sold and she actually got the company back because the buyer didn't do mm. what they said with the business. So like, yeah, you know, was there anything that you or Terry or your team did to make sure that they were truly like the integrity behind their, their vision of the business? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And you know, it, there's never any guarantees when you sell the business, you don't own it anymore. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> um, you know, they, the, the buyer, the buyer can, tell you everything that you want to hear. There's no guarantees that they're going to follow through on it. So um, uh, I I would say it's a a do your due diligence. And we did. Now, part of our deal structure is that we, we did, we did roll some equity, a small amount of equity back up into Illuminate. And in us agreeing to that as part of the deal structure, we did a, we sort of did a, a mutual due diligence. So what we asked of Illuminate and they agreed to was to kind of do a mutual share out. So we asked for things like their strategic plan. We asked to, to for their financials. We asked to see, uh, you know, their go-to-market, their vision. How did they intend to integrate FastBridge into their portfolio? Um, cool. Yeah. So we sort of did the, a mutual, I guess I would call it mutual due diligence um, at, to, to try and vet some of that out. I, as CEO, asked to um, to talk with other former CEOs of companies that they had acquired, and they 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 gave me the the you know permission and and the contacts to be able to mm-hmm. do that. So I asked those other CEOs really pointed questions: Did they follow through? What has been the culture? How have your former employees felt about the company? 
The thing about the education space, it's a pretty small, <laughs> it's a little, you know, right. it, it's a, people know each other. They tend to stay in the industry a long time. Um, so you kind of get to know too, like the real, you, you can suss out, you know, what's real, what's not real. I also had tremendous respect um, and uh, for their CEO and, and through the entire process, I've, I've, you know, I felt a real true um, genuineness coming from her about how she felt about Fastbridge. Um, you know, so a lot of it was is trust. And at the end of the day, you do have to sort of realize that they can do with your baby whatever they want. But we tried just to do that, you know, leverage the fact that we were putting equity into the business, back into their business to do, you know, some formal due diligence. Um, as mm-hmm. well as, you know, kind of good old fashioned references and, and really in relationship. So a couple questions on is like this, uh, as you're transacting, what were the, what was the conversation with you and your partners that you said, okay, Hey, this feels right. And then was there anything that your board of advisors or cherry tree or anybody said that just solidified the deal where you guys are like, okay, this is it. You know, I would say it wasn't really that clean or easy. <laughs> um, you <laughs> <What>? know, <laughs> selling a business is messy. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the minute lawyers get involved, it gets messy. Um, <laughs> uh, no, no disrespect to uh, to the attorneys that we worked with, but um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's complicated. You know, you you talked about you know a lot of the terms and conditions, and you know when when the first draft of the purchase agreement came through and it was, you know, 90 pages of legalese, it got real, right? Um, And we really had to rely on, you know, obviously the expertise of our attorneys, um, the expertise of Cherry Tree, because in all frankness, none of us, university aside, but the three main partners, none of us had been through this experience before. Mm -hmm. And so, really strongly relied on trusted partners um, to advise us. And, you know, one of the things I would say about Cherry Tree is that they were incredibly patient. And I would, you know, advise any any of my peers in, in, in the community who are going through this with their business, like make sure the people that you are engaging in this process, you trust them and that they are acting in your best interest. Um, you know, everybody, when you're going through this kind of a transaction, everybody that's engaged stands to make money. Your investment <laughs> banker is going to make money. Your attorneys are going to make money. And, you know, ideally, if, if done right, the business owners are going to make money. But everybody has their own interests. And so, you know, making sure that you've got great trusted partners um, that are going to do right by you and your partners through the transaction um, is super important. And, and we were very blessed to have that. And, and we really relied on them um, to help us navigate because it got hard. Um, and, and like I said, all of us agreed that at any point, literally up until the time that we were signing on, on you know, docu signing the final purchase agreement and all the 30 other documents that had to be signed, could say, hold on, or we don't want to do this. Um, and um, we really stayed true to that. And, and and there were certain points, Ryan, like down to the 11th hour where I, I wasn't 100% convinced we were going to do it. 
what were some of the hangups? Um, certainly that the, we had to agree on the valuation and we got a very, very healthy evaluation. So that, that we all were, was it a multiple of revenue or multiple of EBITDA? Multiple of revenue. Um, just, just for everybody, this is why you get into SaaS based business. And you know, a young growth business typically is, is multiples of revenue, uh, or a combination of revenue, revenue and EBITDA, EBITDA, EBITDA revenue or EBITDA multiples tend to be in a more mature, um, businesses typically, but in in this space, it was all about the revenue and the growth, the growth trajectory, and the and the expectation of continued growth on re- top line revenue. Um, you know that that it got sticky with things like non competes, intellectual property. We worked through it all, but those are those are tough issues to to kind of wrestle to the ground and get make sure everybody has full clarity on what all of that means and what's there and who owns what. And <laughs> those were, you know, not insurmountable, obviously, because we got the deal done, but they took longer. And it was it was a lot of lawyer time. It was a lot of, you know, legalese and helping us understand and us trying to, to translate what we were doing into something that lawyers could understand. At the end of the day, the lawyers really slow down the process, but they're there to serve in the best interests of both parties. So you need them, but they, they also 90 page document. That's a purchase agreement. They can also sometimes serve to cloudy the process. And so again, you just, you yep. just got to kind of work it through and make sure you're working with folks that you really trust. So like, as we're coming out the other side of the sale, Terry is, you know, you know, at this, it probably helped as you're doing reverse due diligence, trying to envision you and your partners, what's your new role going to be? Mm. How is the new vision of the company going to be handed off? You're yeah. handing off multiple batons. So yeah. on the role, yep. uh, money, as well as the, uh, the vision of the business, how did you like, ex- what was your and your uh, co-founders um, experience on the other side of like understanding how you fit into this thing that your brainchild, yeah. right? Like, so how... How did you fit in when it was no longer yours? And so, of the three partners, um, two of us stayed with um, and and became employees of Illuminate. One um, did not, and uh, on purpose. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and okay. he uh, he ended up um, basically serving in the consulting capacity, but not as a full time employee. So he could kind of go off and do whatever he wanted and or needed to do in academia. I stayed on in the capacity of um, president of Fastbridge and direct report to their, the CEO. And um, my other partner stayed in, um, in a data science and, and innovation technology capacity in the organization. You know, my role, I agreed to stay for 18 months. So I'm just at the end of, of my, of my tenure post-acquisition, um, literally within weeks here. And, you know, for me, we all had the option to stay or not to stay. It wasn't mandatory, although preferred and, and requested, um, partly because Illuminate um, really wanted to not break the momentum, right? Um, it was really important to them that we not, um, we not and they not screw up. <laughs> the momentum, which was really, you know, it was working, right. (laughs) 
Um, so what, what would be needed from me from a leadership perspective to help transition the company um, because we were so missioning such a strong culture and purpose-driven culture that was having great success, what would be needed from me as the leader to bring that over into the Illuminate context in a way that FastBridge could continue to be wildly successful? You know, oftentimes in the year of an acquisition, things get wobbly. You might see, a, you know, from distraction or whatever, we were actually able to continue and, and actually hit and exceeded what we had projected from a sales and profitability perspective, even through the acquisition and, and into the end of 2019. But that was because um, Illuminate really trusted us to kind of just keep operating for the most part, especially in the early months, because by the way, we closed the acquisition at the end of June. July 1st is the changeover in the fiscal year for school budgets. We were right in oh, the thick, <laughs> right in the thick of our, uh, you know, the height of our selling season, our renewals, new business, what have you, implementations. We needed to get that done and get it done really successfully. So I was brought in in that role to ensure FastBridge would continue to be wildly successful and to lead the integration, which we we tried to take the approach of doing the integration in as natural a way as we possibly could. In other words, we didn't force fit anything at any one point in time. Um, and Illuminate was actually really very, very generous in terms of um, not mandating like, okay, by September 1st, you're going to be on our accounting system. So we, we really... Yeah. You know, we evaluated each piece and part um, as it made sense and, and did. And we ultimately finished the bulk of the integration by, I would say, within nine months of the sale. Um, and then, of course, that was, let's call it February. And then COVID happened. And the entire <laughs> and the entire school market, um, I know you said oh you don't gosh. have school-age children, but if you'll remember, come March or so, middle of March, schools across the country just shuttered. Um, kids went home and, and, and educators had to figure out in about a two-week period of time how to do remote learning. Um, and <laughs> as it happens, um, you know, just about the time that we were finishing up the FastBridge acquisition and the pandemic happened and it really put us into sort of a crisis management mode. And so I was fortunate to be in the role that I was because I could really help um, the organization figure out, well, how do you leverage now the FastBridge platform and our value proposition to really help, you know, really help in a way that FastBridge is really uniquely positioned to do. Um, and that's really been the last six months and, you know, worked with the, the leadership team to develop a, a three-year strategic plan for the organization. So I feel like I've been able to really add a lot of value and it's, it's been a little bit of a, you know, a, a more gradual letting go of my baby. <laughs> well, so you get a, there's a couple parts that like, that I think are so important of what I've seen. Uh, I can just tell by, you know, talking to you that you're happy about this and I might be wrong. You, you can uh, interrupt me or say no, <laughs> but the, you know, there's people that have, you know, you said that you were valued and you got to help build their strategic plan. You know what I see a lot of times Terry, where like someone like, you know, trans transitions their baby and they, even if they align with the mission and values of the acquirer, 
all of a sudden they're not valued as much. And it just is like hurtful. You know, even though you could be worth, you know, millions and millions of dollars, you just want to have input in what's going on. And if they don't, you know, value it, it just, it just, it's hard to quantify what that feels like. It's true. I mean, and, and I would be lying if I didn't say that there were days where I didn't feel like Charlie Brown's teacher where, you know, the want, want, want in the background. Um, but that was, that was the, it was a rare exception. Um, but part of that is because to be honest, I worked really hard. Um, and I, and I think that this is the, this is the thing that, you know, if for, for other CEOs and founders that go through this, I had to work really hard and be very conscientious about everything what couldn't be about Fastbridge, right? Um, and that's where you get the, the the Charlie Brown syndrome to really immerse yourself and engage in, you know, what is what is the, the bigger picture? What is the strategy? How do we best fit and leverage these assets? How do you best leverage the talent that you've brought in? Help, help really transfer the knowledge in a way that's meaningful and in, in the context of, the acquiring company, if you can do that, then people value what you're bringing to the table versus you're, you know, you're kind of set to the side or marginalized because all you want to talk about is the company that you built. Um, I had, you have to really balance (laughs) that. You really do. So, so to the extent that, that, you know, and any of your listeners have this experience, that, that would be my one piece of it. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy. There were days where I was like, oh my gosh, they really don't understand what they have here. They're really not understanding if they, if they do X, Y, and Z, it's going to have this, you know, impact over here. Um, but, but like I said, that was the rare exception. And when that did happen, I, I was, you know, I was able to leverage the relationships. And that's the other thing is be proactive in building new relationships with, with, you know, your new peers in, in the organization so that you can leverage those trusted relationships when you need to, you know, when you see the locomotive heading for the brick wall, um, you can say, Hey, I see this happening and let's talk about, what this means and and how can I help? And that's, you know, that was a, a big mantra that I just really tried to leverage during these 18 months post-acquisition and through integration is what can I do to help? How can I help you make FastBridge as successful as possible? Because it was really important to me and really important to my partners. For us, the reason we did this is so that you would carry through our mission. How can I help you do that better? And And that's what we've been able to do. Are you guys all finding a way to fulfill your passion now that you're not the ownership uh, behind it? Mm, you know, I can't really speak to my other to to my other partners in terms of how they're how they're traversing that question, Hoping. Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think it's uh, I think we're each on a, in a different place in terms of that um, because we've each sort of done a different thing or taken on a different role. You know, for me, this is, as I said, I'm a couple of weeks away now from, you know, officially, you know, finalizing. When this my, launches, you'll be, you'll be totally done. <laughs> yeah, I, I will be. And, but I, but I, I feel a sense of satisfaction, true, true satisfaction Good. that we achieved what we set out to do. I don't, I'm not leaving the organization with any major regrets nor concerns, which I think is a testament to the hard work that we did for the last 18 months. And 
very excited to have the opportunity in the future to do this again for another education company. Because as I said at the beginning, if this pandemic has done nothing relative to the education, K-12 education, it has shown a huge spotlight that we have so much more work to do. And Mm -hmm. um, whether it's um, issues of equitable learning, access to equity, you know, racial issues in, in, in education, just supportive teachers. I mean, there are so, so much work to do and opportunity to have greater impact. And so for me, I kind of look at this as an opportunity to like, okay, you know, I've, I did that. It was a great success. We went through a successful exit. The business is thriving within its new, you know, ownership structure. It's time now to, to go find another place where I can have impact in in the education space. And I'm excited to do that. So this is awesome as we're like two kind of final questions, Terry, is that so as you go off, whatever is next, or if you're thinking about the listeners that are tuning in, you and I are part of CEO peer groups and not everybody's gone through an exit, right? So it's, I've been looking for ways to articulate this for seven years now, Terry is like, it's like building with the end in mind. It's not about selling, but it's about having options. Like, how are you going to do it differently? And then how do you speak to your peers who, like, let's say I'm looking at you and we're in a peer group and you're like, I'm not planning on selling. Like, what do you say to people about this to get it across about doing it with the end in mind and having options? Like, how, like, how are you going to do it differently? And then what would you say to those people? Yeah, I, you know, I would say to those folks, of, you, you can plan to not sell but be intentional about it. And, you know, that was one of the things that with, with my partners and I, I think I mentioned, we would, you know, on a pretty regular basis, we'd go off and have our, you know, ownership partner retreats and, you know, not probably not in the first year in 2015, but by 2016, when we sat down, I said, Hey, we, we, we need to talk about what does, what does an exit look like? And the answer for us was, well, here's our magic number, but we don't intend to sell. We, we want to keep doing this as long as we're having fun, but let's talk about it again in a year. And then we came back a year later and said, is this still our number? Are we still having fun? Do we think any differently about a potential exit and when that, when we might want to entertain that? We just kept coming back to it. So I, you know, even though we, we were intentional about saying that we, we, hadn't planned to exit, we talked about it proactively. And I would, I would encourage um, founders and business leaders to do that and be really intentional about your intentions. Um, but also know you can change them anytime. You can always change your mind. <laughs> you know, right? Like market conditions change, economic conditions change, your personal you know, um, influences change. Be flexible, but be be intentional about it. So that's the the last question. What does that word mean to you? What's intentional mean? Mm. Intentional to me is is have a plan, work the plan. And enough said. Um, drop the mic. <laughs> yeah, have a plan, uh, work the plan. What's the best place for the listeners to get in touch with you, follow you, find more information? Well, I have a website, terry at terrysuter.com. Um, I'm an occasional blogger. I'm, one of the things I'll be doing during my little sabbatical here is trying to spend more time blogging and just really kind of sharing my philosophies around leadership and 
entrepreneurism and uh, LinkedIn. And I'm, you know, happy to hear from folks and, and I have some time on my hands until I jump into my next CEO <laughs> gig. So if anybody does want to be in touch, I'm happy to share my story. Terry, thanks so much for coming on the show. I had a blast. Thank you for having me, Ryan. This has been really fun. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Terry. I think if there's one thing I want to highlight for you is I think it was absolutely crucial how disciplined Terry and her partners were about getting together and making sure they were on the same page about the mission, the vision, and the values of the business, what their magic numbers were, and just constantly doing the hard work to stay on the same page. I'm under the belief that if you're doing that hard work of having those conversations, the more knowledge that everybody has that's coming to the table to have those conversations, the more productive those conversations can be. Because if you understand what you want and how what you want might impact the strategies of the business, your role and the energy they have to put in the role and how it might evolve or the things that you want and how the distributions that you want to pull out might impact the ability to reinvest in the business or how your exit options or an out of the boot offer might impact your mission, vision and value. The only way you can sit down and truly weigh all those choices against each other is if you have the data and the knowledge to be able to assess those choices correctly to say, hey, if I want this, how much is it going to cost me? Or if I want to do this, what's it going to do to the value of the business? Or if I want to do X, Y, and Z, does that mean that I'm able to transition my role while also still being able to be financially free? These are all choices and they require data and knowledge to make a good decision that you don't regret later. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Terry. If you want to clarify your path to a more valuable business so you can enjoy work more and make a bigger impact, don't forget to check out the Intentional Growth Digital Course. It's a thousand bucks to do it yourself, or you can hire me for four coaching calls for two thousand bucks over four weeks, and it'll accelerate your knowledge base so that way you can more confidently plan the strategies to a more valuable business and have a peace of mind that you're going to enjoy the journey along the way. Thanks for tuning in, and I will see you next week.